And we're back. About damn time. Really? Seriously? Yeah, I think the drugs are kicking in. It's probably good because I'm topless. That's what all podcasts need. God, we are. Bad Philosophy, episode 84, recorded on February 5th, 2011. Safe for work. Hello, everyone. Come in. One, two, Bad Philosophy, episode 84. We are upsetting the balance of reality in a new and different way today. So last week or last time or last episode or however you want to put the last thing we put on the internet, we uh, we did a little teaser for a, uh, a topic that we... Um, had meant to do last time, but you know the the stars just didn't align, and uh, and the mojo just wasn't right, and we just didn't have the the right conditions to make it happen. But this week we've got slightly better conditions, um, having survived the the snow apocalypse in both Lubbock and uh, somewhere outside of Chicago. Uh, coming to us this week are Jed Cummins. Welcome back to the show. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so you you said everything's melted, right? You're uh you're you're pretty much safe from the deluge now. Uh I was safe the entire time. It was not that bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh Kiki, um, quite a bit of a different situation on your end. You said the snow is still about halfway burying the first floor. Yeah, it's it's probably about 3 to 4 feet high in some places after the plows have kind of bunched it up how nice of them now do, do y'all have those same uh, epic plows that japan has that make those those neat little like uh, uh snow canyons to uh, to carve out the roads you know it it kind of does like it's kind of hard to see if you're pulling out of some roads now it's kind of hard to see over the snow to see if there's you know people coming so God. It kind of depends on what curb you're on, but yeah, sometimes the the curb can completely obliterate your your line of sight. So it it can get pretty bad, but for the most part now, you know, I mean, the power never went off up here, and uh, as long as you stayed off the roads until they got plowed, it's it's been you know okay. I mean, they know what to do with that stuff up here. Yeah. Everybody in the south's like, oh my god, white stuff, run! Oh God! So, Here in Austin, so so we got uh, sub freezing temperatures constantly for about three days, and uh, and at the end of which we got an inch of snow. Well, on the uh, on the the second day of this, uh, the roads hadn't really iced up too much, but it was so cold that uh, that everyone just stayed home from work, and then finally on the morning when it did ice up, it was. A pretty similar situation, you know. Maybe half the people in the town went into work uh, before noon, and the rest decided to to take most of the day off anyway. So, you know, it's all relative. I, I think uh, everyone down here just kind of freaked out, and uh, I still had to work. By the way, the Apple Store was was still open, and uh, most of the people in there were were Northerners that were just like, "Oh yeah, you know, this is <laughs> this is nothing. This is a nice day when I in Baltimore." <laughs> So it's uh, it's all relative, I guess. But we're happy to hear that y'all both survived the uh, the winter snow apocalypse of 2011, and uh, survived to talk about some Ayn Rand. Now, a brief introduction. I don't think we've ever really given Ayn Rand too much of a going over on this show before. I, I was reading back through the logs the other day, and I think in episode six we may have briefly talked about Ayn Rand because the tag is there, but. Really, we haven't ever talked about her in, in detail. So, Jed, you recently read Atlas Shrugged, right, for the first time? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Uh, just uh, decided that it was one of those things I should probably read before I died. And Okay, and why did you decide now that? Now seemed like a good time. Um, I'd say probably some Kevin Saunders influence, but I also remember my dad reading it when I was like eight. So. Huh. <laughs> And, you know, just kind of one of, I guess, those classic literature pieces that you're supposed to read. Back quote. Interesting. <laughs> so. See, that that alone is, is kind of a, a good place to start. Like, I, it's weird just tracing the history of Ayn Rand's writings and, and trying to figure out why the heck this this random woman became 
such a, a, a controversial figure and why her writings became, you know, required reading um, for, for a lot of, uh, for the intellectual crowd or just, you know, anyone interested in, uh, in literature. Um, I, I'm not super up on her history, but there's a, there's a great article that, that Kevin, who is unfortunately not going to be with us today due to a, uh, quote, conference, uh, he sent us these uh, these links beforehand, and uh, apparently, so so the uh, Atlas Shrugged was not Ayn Rand's first uh, writing. Uh, she was a Russian immigrant uh, who, her, the first book she wrote was The Fountainhead, which was kind of about this uh, architect who brings about political and ideological change by blowing up buildings or something like that. I've, I've never actually read the book. Um, but it was sort of her in after uh, after her uh, the money she made off the fountainhead. She was uh, allowed time to write uh, Atlas Shrugged, which expanded on the the philosophical and political uh, ideas that she set up in the first book. And uh, it was published in, the, in 1957 after about uh, 10 years of, of writing. And it's um, you know for anyone who hasn't read it, it's it's basically about this. Uh, these industry magnates in kind of a fictional uh, industrial revolution America. Uh, one is like the head of a steel empire, and uh, the other is is a head of a, a railroad company. And uh, they they basically together kind of change the the political structure of the nation along with some other uh, high powered intellectuals. And there's there are a lot of multi-dozen page monologues in the book. There's a lot of, of really heavy dialogue and the, the characters are, are not what I would say, um, terribly multi-dimensional, but it's, uh, it's certainly an interesting read, uh, and a long read. Uh, how long did it take you to get through the book? Uh, probably about two and a half weeks. And that's, you know, with, work in school and other stuff. Did you actually read the text at, version? Uh, yes. Wow. The only way I could make so. it through that was, was the audible version. <laughs> oh. And, uh, and so, so Jed, just before, uh, we get into kind of talking about the, the philosophical and, uh, and political messages of the book, what did you, what did you think of it from a literary standpoint? Like what were your first impressions while you were reading it? And then upon, uh, finishing it, um, well, I think I, I chuckled a little bit when you were talking about the multi-page monologues because they're really like multi-chapter monologues yeah. in this book. <laughs> as far how long, as, is, you know, how long is John Galt's speech uh, toward the end? Oh, it's it, like it was a significant, uh, you know, a good chunk of the, you know, of the book. I it's like 15% of the book, right? It's like 60, 70 yeah. pages. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, I think it's, Wikipedia it's, says it's seventy four. Seventy four pages. Oh yeah, God, something like that. Yeah, so you know, it's if you were to mark the side of each of those pages with a black pen or something, it would be a, a nice, you know, quarter of a centimeter, half right. a centimeter, somewhere in there. So, um, but yeah, I definitely some of those parts definitely grew a little tedious. I'll be honest, um, because I think you know you could definitely cliff note John, John Galt's speech into, you know, like do shit on your own, <laughs> letting other people or the government do it for you is bad. Yeah. <laughs> was, you know, the, the gist of that, but he, you know, took three hours on the radio and 70 pages in the book to do it. So yeah. John Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged is pretty much Ayn Rand talking to the, the reader. Like, John Galt is, is Ayn Rand's mouthpiece. And, you know, the yes. various characters espouse different uh, facets of her philosophy or, um, you know, philosophies to which she disagrees. You know, like, she uses, she uses the context of the book to kind of uh, structure and show how the philosophies of uh, communism, socialism, um, you know, regulated capitalism uh, fail in various ways. Uh, but she sets them up as straw men, in, in my opinion. But you know, it, it's the the entire book is essentially her, you know, laying out her her political and, and uh, philosophical uh, ideas. And 
you know, no more explicitly than in this this speech by John Galt at the end, which there there's a great uh, kind of <laughs> for she, she was apparently asked one time to to summarize uh, her philosophy while standing on one leg. Um, this is the philosophy became uh, known as objectivism. Uh, not I don't think a phrase that she coined, but uh, just what it has been become known as. And it's uh, it's essentially this. Um, number one, metaphysics, objective reality. Two, epistemology, reason. Uh, three, ethics, self-interest. And uh, finally, four, politics, capitalism, uh, specifically laissez-faire capitalism. Uh, not, you know, completely unregulated uh, market forces, you know, set on its, uh, its own direction capitalism. And so these, these kind of became the, the tenets of objectivism. And, you know, Jed, what, what did you, did, did you feel like you were being preached to sometimes as you're reading the book? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, I think realistically the, uh, that, that chapter of the radio speech that John Galt gives is, just so tedious at points. Um, you know, it's, it's really a almost, you know, I just want them to do the kind of shortened version of the like oath. And then, yeah. you, get it. you know, yeah. it's the, the oath that's kind of the central focus, you know, to, I guess, add a second perspective to what you said was her while standing on one leg. Um, brief version is that I swear by my life and my love for it that I will never live for the sake of another man nor ask another man to live for mine. That's it. Right. That's, that's what you get out of the book is that, you know, rely on yourself. Don't be a whiny bitch. (laughs) It's, it's, I would, I would, uh, shorten it to that maybe. So, so that said, um, Kiki, you have some thoughts on this subject. You've never read Atlas Shrugged. Let's get that out of the way first, right? You've never read any yeah, Ayn I mean, Rand, right? I, I have I have never read any of her her work, but I, I do know the, the philosophy behind it, which is why I decided never to read any of her work, because I thought <laughs> it was other waste of my time. Um, because I really felt like I didn't really need to read the rantings of a rich, selfish bitch. So, you know, just... So why why do you think she's a ranting, selfless bitch? Um, well, I mean, the, the entire idea of objectivism... I mean, I, I can get behind the rationality and reason. You know, I think that is, is really what, what people should build their lives on. But... I don't think that, um, you know, it's it's got the quote there from Atlas Shrugged that's like, you know, my philosophy in essence is the concept of man as a heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, right. with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason his only absolute. And, you know... I, I can dig the reason and the rationality and the, you know, you should work, you know, but, but she believed in, in, you know, complete lazy affair capitalism, which is absolutely no, you know, restrictions yeah. at all. Basically um, let, let market forces decide completely. Um, the unfortunate thing is in this world that she sets up there, there isn't really competition per se. I mean, this, um, whatever his name's, uh, what, what is the, the, um, there's Dagny Taggart. She's the head of the, the railroad company. And then the other guy is, um, God, I'll find it. Hank Reardon. Huh? Hank Reardon. Hank Reardon. Francisco Dan. Yeah. Um, they're heads of, of, uh, steel and copper respectively. And they're pretty much like the only companies in these categories, right? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Like yeah. there's there's associated steel, I think, is the other steel one that's basically the everything that's wrong, quote unquote, with industry. Yeah. But we're talking about, you well, know, a few you know, a couple of companies, one of whom is is uh, you know, almost completely dominant. And uh, you know, so her ideal is not necessarily competition, it's it's let, you know, one guy become the best 
And, you know, monopolies are just an inevitability of success and they're perfectly okay. Yeah. Which, I mean, is already proving the problem because in, in reality, you know, if, if you think about it reasonably, uh, then, you know, monopolies have never worked. Monopolies never work for the people. Monopolies work for one really rich dude at the top, which, like I said, rich bitch, so who cares? Yeah, which um, she's actually okay with. She says, well, that's, you know, sucks for the other people. They didn't apply their reason well enough or whatever. Or they, they, you know, served others' interests instead of their own, and therefore they're at the bottom. Yeah, but there, there are also other things where living for other people's interests is objectively a much more moral thing to do. I mean, there are people who sacrifice their own happiness because, you know, they had a son or a daughter born with a disability or, you know, their parents become, you know, disabled with Alzheimer's or something. And, you know, that most people, I mean, I would wager almost anyone would say that that it is much more morally laudable to you know, sacrifice some of your own happiness to take care of the less fortunate than to say, well, screw them. They can't apply their, you know, their own intellect to make their lives better so they can go to hell. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, her, her, it's, so her, it's in philosophical terms, her philosophy is essentially rational egoism, uh, egoism being self-interest. You know, the one's, one's ego yeah. is the, um, you know, they should be the ultimate uh, center of their um, actions. You know, the, therefore, take only actions that benefit yourself. And uh, there are, you know, some pretty heavy criticisms of that. I mean, if and, and they they sort of, Ayn Rand sort of glosses over the the problems with this uh, philosophy in her uh, in, in her novel. You know, the the characters that kind of support the the protagonists. Um, the the ones who are most self interested don't really get too much of a voice, you know. Because behind every company, there have to be um, you know folks who sacrificed for their own self interest, so that to, in order to follow someone else's, and in doing so, they're actually, in my opinion, violating the the principle of rational egoism. You know, what is it? is it in my interest always to uh, follow along with someone else and not do something that I'm interested in doing? Um, I, I think, I forget, do, Jay, do you remember exactly how she works that out in the, in the novel? I know she has some sort of excuse for that. What specifically? Sorry. Work, working for others, you know, working for a company. Oh, sure. And I think probably if you wanted to pick, the best example of that, that would be the Eddie Illards or something to that effect. Yeah. Character who's basically not smart enough to make it on his own. Mm. Um, he's basically the character that starts out the novel and you, you kind of get things from his perspective and how in awe of Dagny, who's the, you know, really the main character who goes through the transformation from thinking that, you know, this philosophy is evil to really embracing it. Yeah. Um, but he's so much in awe of her. And then as the world is collapsing around, around them and, you know, all these people have spoiler alert, peaced out. Um, <laughs> he basically is left on the train in the middle of the desert and you have no idea what happens to him. Mm. Um, you know, he's just, uh, basically you don't know if he dies. You, I, that was kind of my assumption that is, you know, is the effectiveness of society wanes. Like he just kind of becomes a casualty of it because he wasn't smart enough to do it. Yeah. You know, he wasn't smart enough to stand on his own two feet, I guess, you know, as far as the philosophy of the book is concerned. Which is and, really unfortunate. Um, and I mean, so, so that's, that's one of the um, objections is, you know, it, the, in order to survive in society, you know, you'd think that, okay, self-interest says that, that we should, you know, always be looking out for our own happiness, right? So what, 
where does it where does helping others come in? Well, helping others then has to be in our own self-interest, maybe in our long-term self-interest. Um, but, oh wait, if it's in our long-term self-interest, then it's not in our short-term self-interest, right? So th this is kind of one of the, one of the uh, traditional uh, philosophical objections to, um, to rational egoism. And uh, I admit I'm getting this one from Wikipedia as well, but uh, it's by Derek Parfit, uh, or Parfi, or I don't know, hell, I don't know. Um, and it's, it's sort of this, so to be, to be self-interested, does that mean to be self-interested in your own happiness now, or your own happiness in the future? Uh, because if, if I'm interested in my own uh, happiness now, then I wouldn't invest in the stock market, because that takes away money that I could be spending now on my own pleasure. But if I am interested in my happiness in the future, then I do invest in the stock market. I deprive myself in the short term for happiness in the long term. Uh, so there's there's sort of a disconnect there. It's uh, it's it's unclear exactly which way to go. Um, I'm sure Rand has responded to this at some point, but that's you know one of the the prima facie uh, objections to to rational egoism. Um, I want to kind of well, take, I... take a step back here. Um, Jed, you, would you say you, you agreed with the, any parts of her philosophy or with, with anything in the book, or did you, did you mostly disagree with it? Um, well, it's, I think I read it at a really interesting time, I guess, in my quote-unquote academic development. Um, I don't know if I've shared on the show that I'm currently pursuing an MBA, which is leaps and bounds away from physics and computer science and then <laughs> leaps and bounds away from higher education policy. Um, so it's, it's interesting to be in a college of business where I think this type of opinion is met much more friend, friendly or I, you, oh, you guys know yeah. what I mean. Um, there are many objectivist businessmen. <laughs> yes. So, um, it's, it's interesting to think of that, and I think kind of as I was reading it, the one comment from one of my business professors that really resonated in response to the, you know, oh, monopoly is bad thing was, well, is monopoly bad when you're considering things on a global scale? Um, and, you know, for instance, he was thinking about, well, if we have national industries, doesn't that really help out the whole nation? You know, if we still have that other country to compete with, is that a bad thing or not? And I don't know if I know the answer to that or you really mean sort have of having, having local monopolies, like one, one company handling copper in Venezuela and then one company Correct. handling copper in America. Well, I think more for, more for example, say that, Google became the dominant search company. What do you for, mean became? And, I know. <laughs> yeah, like, go with it. Yeah. Um, okay. Google is the dominant search engine, search company, lots of other services that they provide with that, and they're based in America. So that means lots of that tax revenue is coming to us. Yeah. Versus if we have a, a second search engine, say, you know, just for the sake of argument, this isn't based on reality at all. Um, you know, a second search engine, say in China, <laughs> because they have their own interests and their own thing. They're going to be generating revenue for them. Wouldn't it sort of make sense if we said, you know, like if we allowed Google to grow in a way and, you know, really dominate in that particular industry or set of industries because that means the money's coming to us and we're reaping benefits from it, yeah. which I realized that. So, and I'm, I'll be completely honest with you. That's definitely a devil's advocate opinion. Okay. And not <laughs> my personal one. Cause I already so, got a rebuttal but, to that. I, you know, sure. first, first off, I don't think that, I don't think you can really say that, that a company like Google is based anywhere uh, anymore. Like they, multinational corporations are based everywhere in the world now. I mean, yes, Google's headquarters is in Mountain View, California. Yes, their incorporation is probably in the United States. 
but it it means less and less and less as the years go on and as as uh, companies start operating everywhere in the world um, you know that their their nationality or what you know whatever nation they pay taxes to matters a heck of a lot less in, in the long term because they have uh, you know financial accounts in in so many different banks in so many different countries and if you know say if the US were to collapse Google would not you know Google would still have the ability to to shift all of its operations somewhere else and uh, you know even though they're they're technically physically based somewhere the company is is you know, based in the cloud. They're based in the internet. They're in this sort of virtual space that has never really uh, existed before. And, you know, to, to say that they would be uh, competing with another nation or that, that a nation's interest could be tied to a company, I, I don't really think so. I think, you know, Google is just partnering with the United States. They're not necessarily based here or uh, servile to the United States in any way. Or a lot less than than uh, the United States would probably like to believe. <laughs> yes, and that I think that's my opinion, um, pretty much verbatim. So, okay. but I I definitely wanted to bring that point up because it seemed very relevant to the book, and when I was reading it, it was you know an interesting idea and an interesting kind of coincidence that my business, my management professor decided yeah. to bring up. So, well, well, Kiki, did you have any more thoughts on this, uh, this rational egoism part? Cause I kind of wanted to talk about the, uh, the other facets of the philosophy as well. Well, there is, you know, there is, uh, I've been, I've been going through a lot of, of various, you know, philosophical debate on, what is the the root of morality and mm. what could be considered an objective morality outside of uh, religious belief? Um, you know, what could, what could everyone of any faith or, you know, secular position uh, kind of see as the, the center of, you know, a true moral compass. Mm. Um, and the closest thing I've, I've found that I can sort of agree with is that the basis of morality is anything that causes suffering is on the evil spectrum and anything that alleviates suffering is on the good. So you know, with, with a lot of gray area. Yeah. With a, with a lot of gray area in the, in the thing, you know, um, it might make me happy to stab you in the face, but that would cause suffering and that would objectively be evil, mm. you know? Yeah. That, um, so, so that is, that is essentially consequentialism. Uh, are, are you, would you go so far as to say uh, utilitarianism, which the, the tenet of utilitarianism would be um, the right action is that which maximizes uh, happiness for everyone. The right action for yeah. me is that which maximizes happiness for everyone. You know, and, and maybe not everyone, but there is there is a reason that humans have evolved as social creatures. You know, humans on their own are are not as strong as the sum of their parts. And mm. I'm not saying this as a, you know, like a, a communist idea or anything, because I think those guys are screwed up as well. But, the you know, the idea of... I don't know how to farm. I would suck at farming. <laughs> and I'm not really I'm not really that great at, you know, chasing animals down and killing them without a gun and I can't make a gun on my own. You know, so I mean, I agree that you know, we we need all those parts. And the problem with this this idea of, you know, well, you've got to be strong enough and, you know, all this to do it yourself is really, um, it's coming from a position of, of having, you know, it's, it's come, it, most of the people I find who put this forward, this kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing <laughs> are people that have never really been poor. And I mean, we're talking like not sure where your next meal is coming from poor, you know, and if you've never had to worry about that, it's very difficult to put yourself in that, 
that mind space, you know? And there are people who even come from such poverty and get more money than you could ever want and still have that, that terror of where's my next meal coming from, even mm. though it's not logical anymore. Um, because it's very, you know, it's, it's very difficult when you are, um, when you have nothing and when you come from nothing to make something from nothing. Yeah. You and know, I, it's, and I think it's this is very... perfectly summarized in the, in the comic that, that Jed just posted in the, uh, yeah. in the chat room here. Um, I'll go ahead and read it cause it's, it's, it's mostly dialogue. Uh, Bob, the angry flowers, classic literature sequels, Atlas shrugged, uh, Atlas shrugged two, one hour later. And uh, it's this big angry flower saying, at last, we, the creators, the entrepreneurs, the titans who make this world work have given up on the compromised bureaucratic society that held all of us back. And look, it's on fire now. That'll teach them to submit to government coercion. Next frame. Uh, Man, being proved right makes me hungry. What's for lunch? Lunch? Asks Dagny Taggart. Uh, don't service create lunch? Uh, asked John Galt. I certainly can't cook, says Dagny. I only know how to pay people to create new alloys, says uh, uh, Hank Reardon. And uh, Flower says, wait a minute, nobody remembered to bring an inexhaustible labor force of robots? What's the plan now, genius? We're all going to have to till the soil? And then hard months later, he's he's tilling the soil in a field. This sucks. <laughs> so yeah, basically it's like, Oh, well, nobody's going to work for us because that's not in their self-interest. So uh, we basically have to go back to making our own food, which means we can't enjoy all the you know nice intellectual ple- pleasures that come with uh, having other people make your food for you, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the practicalist objection to objectivism, which is that this just won't work. <laughs> you know, try, try actually practicing these principles. They just won't work. And and where would families come from? I well, mean, um, you know, one might say procreation is in your in your self interest because it's you know it's pleasurable to create life. Yeah, but there's a lot of sacrifice of your own happiness that comes from being a parent. Yeah, and again, it's, I, you it's know, that I'm disconnect not, between short term and long term uh, self interest, short term and long term pleasure. Yeah. And you don't even know if it's going to be in your long-term self-interest. Mm. I mean, you know, like I said, that's you know, it's kind of rolling a die there. You know, yeah. I mean, am I am I going to get a child that you know is going to grow up and become a you know a drain on me, or am I going to get a child that's going to grow up and you know become a CEO, or you know, well, I mean, there's according a, to Ayn Rand, there's a you, lot... would, you should be able to reason through that. <laughs> You know, you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to guess about anything. This, I actually, I think, is a is an even weaker part of her philosophy. That uh, you know, everything can be derived through through reasoning. Uh, this is actually what Descartes thought, and that was kind of his fallacy. You know, he went. He, Descartes went. You know what? Human beings should be completely rational, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna strip. And, and if and if if that's the case, then I should be able to I should be able to reason my way through all of my knowledge. I should be able to start from some first principle and then reason and and figure out rationally every other piece of knowledge in, in the in the in my repertoire. Uh, I should be able to know everything from this this one first principle. And so he he you know locked himself in a room and just tore down everything he knew and went, you know, what is the most basic thing that I know? And that is what he came up with was, I think, therefore I am. So he came up with, I exist. Well, that's, that's pretty profound. Okay, I can, I'll give him that, which really we shouldn't, because all he can really say is there is thinking going on. The agent part is up for debate. But anyways, let's, so let's give him that. I exist. And then his next step is to kind of go, I exist. Well, therefore God exists. And the way he does it is is very strange and tautological and and kind of a fallacy. So then, you know, he reasons that, well, God exists, therefore cheese exists. And then he's able to kind of uh, do a, you know, plus to infinity that everything else exists. Uh, You know, everything in that, you know, God wouldn't, uh, God wouldn't deceive me. Uh, You know, God, he he brings in this, this uh, concept of an evil demon, right? That, uh, 
you know, I couldn't be, I couldn't be wrong um, if, if both I exist and God exist, uh, God would not create an evil demon that would deceive me to where like everything I thought I believed would actually be some evil demon placing thoughts in my head. So uh, because God would never do that because God is good or something, um, therefore what I perceive is actually there. So I look at a block of cheese and there's a block of cheese there. So I look at a plate and there's definitely a plate there. And you know, if this works for me, then it works for other people. If I perceive other people and they act the same way, then he builds back the, the whole world, right? So he can build back all of his knowledge of perceptions and everything. But it's it's kind of interesting. Right at the beginning there, there are some pretty bad fallacies. And it's, you know, if, it, if you've ever read uh, Predictably Irrational, you know, I mean, human beings are not capable of perfect, pure reason. And, uh, and even perfect pure reason doesn't actually get us what we think it does. Um, Jed, do you remember specifically kind of the, the A is A uh, part of John Galt's speech? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, that was kind of her, her, uh, her fleshing out this epistemology part. Yeah. I don't know that I would... <laughs> I don't think I remember it well enough to feel comfortable yeah. <laughs> trying to to reiterate it i'll be like i said earlier it was a whole chapter there were parts of it that i checked out for you know, like. <laughs> yeah so you know my in you you can go read more on this if you want an actual rigorous objection to it but the the point is you know it's been debunked that pure reason alone or you know human reasoning can actually give us a you know, an epistemology, a, a solid epistemology of, of uh, being able to say that, yes, we know X because we reason it or because we can think or, you know, something along those lines. So that breaks down kind of too. And, and uh, the, the, the characters in the book are, are almost superhuman. Like the, the way in which they operate is, is so, it's like of some ideal of humankind that, that Rand creates that is just completely inaccurate. You know, if you actually expected real people to, to think and act in the way that these characters do, it just doesn't happen. Nobody actually acts or thinks this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the one thing to, to me about the, the idea of like, you know, you can just reason everything out. It's, you know, it's the same thing as everything else. Um, one person sitting alone trying to figure out how the world works is going to give you, well, maybe there's a dude in a chariot pulling the sun across the sky. <laughs> you know, that's that's what one person alone with no ability, you know, you have to be taught to to reason. I mean, you really do. You know, in the absence of education is superstition. I mean, that's what we find. You go to the lowest educated, you know, populations, and that has the highest rate of superstition, you know? Yeah. Um, but one person alone, and even if one person alone could figure out the entire universe in their lifetime, that means that the entirety of every single person's life would have to be spent figuring out the universe on their own. Because the teaching of something to another person is an altruistic act in the in the the good interests of society. Mm. I mean, I was a I was a tutor for a long time and I come from, you know, my father was a teacher and all this. It's really annoying to teach people sometimes. I mean, there is pleasure to be gotten from it. And you know, I do feel that, but sometimes when you are dealing with just rock stupid people, <laughs> You just would you just would rather do anything than sit there and explain that the seventeenth time, yeah, in hopes that you can get through to them. But you know that if you can pass this knowledge on to the next generation well enough, that the next generation can take that and build upon it and make that, you know, that will increase the knowledge base of the entire species. Yeah, and improve you the know, species and, and kind of move things forward. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the idea. It certainly hasn't been the reality throughout time. Uh, you know, it's, we've still had a pretty rocky that development. That is true. But, <laughs> but taken, that is the idea. Oftentimes we've taken two no. steps forward, one step back, or three steps back in the case of the, 
um, the Dark Ages. <laughs> but, yeah, but but that is that is the idea. I mean, that's why teachers do what they do. Every teacher that I do wants their students to come up with something they never thought of before. I mean, yeah. the good ones. There, there are people who are like, well, this seemed like the easiest thing to do at the time, which they're wrong. But, you know, I mean, most teachers, especially teachers on, you know, a primary and secondary level, get paid nothing to work very long hours, more hours than they're paid for, certainly. Many of them spend their own money on class supplies in right. America. You know, I mean, this is a very thankless job. And most of them who do it, you know, the ones who do it out of kind of a pure intent and not just, I couldn't find any other job, what, you know, are doing it so that maybe one day someone that they educated will, well, you know, be the next Hawking or Einstein or someone that sheds real light on the future of the world. Yeah. Or, you know, comes up with a better philosophy or comes up with a better, you know, medical procedure or comes up with a better piece of literature, you know, and that there, I cannot see in a rational self-interest, you know, if you're, if you're going to do everything for your own happiness, I, I really can't see that many people bothering to become teachers. Hmm. bothering to do all of that just out of, well, it makes me happy. There would be very, very few. But they, most teachers that I know derive their happiness from the perhaps. You know, perhaps one of these people will, you know, pass this on. And that's something you can't get if it's like, well, you know, you're here to be happy and screw everybody else. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned superstition in there because uh, it's it's interesting to kind of to to take a, another step back, you know, look another uh, level above the the philosophy of Ayn Rand herself, and kind of look at her her life and the uh, the cult that de developed around her afterward. Um, her her writings, I think she she just hit the um, she hit the right chord at the right time. I think in the the kind of late 1950s, early 1960s, there when the nation was was having sort of an identity crisis, a philosophical identity crisis, and was looking to, you know, every conceivable uh, philosophy possible to kind of to build up a, uh, an idea of, you know, what, what is, so what do we, what do we embrace? You know, what is our, our, uh, our motto, our creed, our, you know, our, our direction? And, uh, you know, some folks were looking to Eastern philosophy, to, uh, to mysticism of, of various respects. Others were looking to, you know, to the philosophy of Ayn Rand, to, to pure reason, to, to self-interest for, uh, for a direction in their lives. And, uh, and so her books got really popular, very widely distributed. Uh, in the 1960s, apparently there were, there were classes taught about uh, her books, you know, where students would read through the fountainhead and anthem and uh and atlas shrugged and and discuss the philosophy and write papers on it and um you know have a nice little uh intellectual orgy over uh, over Ayn Rand's writings but uh you know her her entourage kind of developed it as well uh, she had you know various people come up around her and uh and you know perpetuate her philosophy and become these this sort of objectivist uh society that, uh, you know, to, to kind of briefly summarize everything, ended up kind of turning in on itself and, and becoming very much a cult where, where Rand was venerated as this, uh, you know, superior human being and, uh, and you know, her successors were, were supposed to be, you know, slightly less than, than her in mental capacity and therefore should be venerated in the same respect. And, you know, this almost the antithesis of her philosophy became the reality. It became, you know, all for one and that one being... Ayn Rand. So, you know, this, this didn't last, you know, the, the cult kind of collapsed in on itself and, uh, you know, various, various people and groups splintered off and, um, it kind of, it was almost a, a, a case study in the application of objectivism itself and in, in reality. And it, and it did fail, you know, the people who adhered most closely to the ideals of Ayn Rand ended up having a pretty piss poor existence. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what, what do, what do y'all think of that? I mean, does, does the failure of, of Rand supporters to, to kind of keep a, a coherent, you know, organization together or to, you know, to lead a fulfilling life, 
disprove her philosophy or is it just did they did they do it wrong <laughs> I, I i don't know go. jed do you want to go ahead <laughs> i don't think my opinion is fully formed so i'll let you go and then maybe i'll have something better to say here in a second hmm. well i i just think that i don't think there is any way for this philosophy to be put into a, into a sustainable practice with the way humanity is and the way the world we live in is hmm. now i mean her you know there's a reason why part of you know why why atlas shrugged is sometimes put in science fiction because it's a very different world it's not our world it really isn't and that world is really not sustainable with the the way humanity is. You know, he just it's brought the S word not. into the equation. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's it it might be okay for certain people at a certain time. You know, if you're already really rich and you've got everything set up, then yeah, you can probably live for your own happiness and screw everybody else. But I you know, I don't think that that's that's really sustainable you know i don't so, so think can i just that, can we just go on a rabbit trail here real quick yeah can, please can can the word and, and this this buzzword sustainability just go away please like this is so the sustainability is like I, i'm trying to think of an equivalent to to this this idea that has just per it has it just permeated like everything in the last five years. And I mean everything, you know, the, the idea that we have to be environmentally sustainable and we have to, you know, political uh, actions have to be sustainable and, you know, uh, machines have to be sustainable or something like that. Like, you know, ideas have to be sustainable. This, this idea of, um, you know, some sort of self perpetuating, uh, you know, easily maintainable, uh, function has just, it's just taken over. And I'm kind of wondering like, where the hell did this start? Like this, you know, sustainability was not even a concept, you know, four, six, seven years ago, or it wasn't so it, it, it's like, it wasn't this buzzword that it was like, do, do y'all remember when that started coming into play? It's really interesting that you bring it up, I think, because I think your Texan is shown a little bit. Okay. Um, but, but okay. So, so tell me, tell me, Jed, from, from your, from your perspective, you know, being in these business classes, being in these, uh, you know, the, the, the MBA program, uh, how often does, you know, how often does someone use, well, that's not sustainable, sustainable as a, as a way to debunk a certain concept or, you know, well, this is a very sustainable idea as sort of a way to, to show that it has value. And it's just, it's sort of become this unquestioned, uh, you know, point of value that something to be sustainable is to be good. Sure. And I guess I separate the concept of a sustainable idea from the concept of a sustainable practice, if that makes sense. Like, I think certainly the idea of doing something so, you know, a practice in a way, so the sustainable practice of, you know, not doing something so we don't F over people generations from now is one thing. Okay. But I, I think the, I, the sustainable idea part is much more interesting um, because to me, if you say that, oh, well, that's not really a sustainable idea or policy, you know, especially thinking about, a, you know, a government-type entity saying, like, yeah. oh, we're going to, you know, do this, and somebody saying, crying out, well, that's not sustainable. I think that's a little bit worth merit, because we as a society, and especially some government policies, seem to be very short-sighted. Like, we're just going to fix this and not figure out what to do after that, mm -hmm. you know? So, especially with the 
again, big air quotes, economic crisis. Um, you know, people are like, well, crap, crap, crap. We just got to do something to fix it. And then, you know, once it's fixed, everything will be hunky dory. And I think it, that sort of thing does is a truly short sighted and isn't really thinking sustainably. How is that, you know, how is this practice or this policy that we're about to set, put in place or set in motion going to be sustainable for lack of a better word, I guess, you know, okay, how is it so going to be? We're going in circles again, but I, okay. What, what sustainability strikes me as is just another way to say uh, future utility. So this idea has, this idea will benefit will bring benefits or bring happiness in the future and continue to into the future versus bringing short-term benefits. So once again, it is, it is the idea of do we, do we value short-term happiness over long-term happiness? Do we value short-term no. sacrifice over long-term sacrifice? Because it, it I, and oftentimes is a wrong, dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Say your piece. Not, not really, you know, not very wrong, but I think the idea of, of the pure idea of sustainability, you know, as, as kind of the definition is that it will give you short-term benefit and long-term benefit. Okay. It will give you exactly the same amount of benefit at, at the very least. It might give you more in the future, but at the very least it has to give you the exact same amount of utility now as it will in the future. And that's things like, things like communism work in the short term. They do. I mean, they'll work for a generation or two or three. But it's not sustainable over several generations. I mean, that's why most of the communist countries we saw were huge powerhouses in the short term and then just crumbled. Uh, you know, for the most part, or converted to some sort of, of capitalism. Or you know? fascism. I mean, in most cases, or, they, they started out nominally communist and ended up just being fascist. Yeah, but, but you know, fascism and stuff is also unsustainable in the long term, which is what you're seeing now in Egypt and stuff. You know, dictatorships will always fall. Yeah. There will always come a point where a people go, all right, you know, f- this we're gonna we're gonna get our own stuff you know like this this needs to change it always happens it differs on the timeline of when it happens you know depending on the the kind of the society and it it is always at the same point if you really look through history i mean at least through kind of from about the the 1600s and on it is when a country ruled by a, a dictatorship or a monarchy or some kind of single rule develops a middle class. Mm-hmm. This is when it happens. When the middle class shows up, the middle class has experienced some form of upward social mobility. You know, there there are poor people and there are people who know, because the poor people are just, they're so used to being poor that they assume that poor will always be the standard. Hmm. But people in the middle class have kind of experienced both, you know, so both ends of the spectrum. I, I, get where you're, I get where you're going with this. I, I want to kind of bring it back around just a little bit. I know we're going on a rabbit trail, but I kind of want to stay on one rabbit trail than, rather than rabbit trailing again. But, so, but I think it's all the same idea. Well, what, what sustainability strikes me as is just another way for, for humans to to try to cheat the fact that everything ends. You know, we, we just, we have this, we have this concept in our brains now. And I, and I think it's, it's not new. It's just sustainability is the latest word we've slapped on it that we don't want things to end. You know, we don't want oil to ever run out. We don't want to ever be without food. We don't want our country to ever fall. You know, we don't, we don't want things to change for the worse. And all history tells us is that nothing, nothing is truly sustainable, ever. Everything ends, and we can only keep it going for differing lengths 
of time. So the, the question the question should not be whether this whether something is sustainable, but for how long we can sustain it. And maybe that is the same question. Maybe maybe some people do grasp that idea in sustainability, but it seems that the, the majority of when I when I hear someone slap sustainability on something, it's is this infinitely sustainable? Is this you know, structure of government infinitely sustainable? Is this environmental concept or structure infinitely sustainable? And, you know, the, the and it, to me, I think it's just a naive concept. And, end sure. of rant. End of rant. <laughs> and I think now that you've fully developed it into saying that let's acknowledge that we're all going to die someday and everything that we have right now is going to be gone then you can say it's going to be limited. And, you know, I think realistically the question that people don't ask and the one that you brought up is that, you know, what's the time limit on how long this will work? And people don't, and I guess that's more my my argument. It's always applied as a binary adjective. Something is either sustainable or not sustainable. It's, I've rarely heard it used as more sustainable or less sustainable. Because truly, everything is sustainable. You can sustain a fascist dictatorship for a certain amount of time, but it's not going to be as sustainable as, oh, I don't know, a democracy maybe. But even a democracy is not infinitely sustainable. I mean, I think we're starting to see the first rumblings of our... De- oh, our own experiment in uh, a democratic republic, a uh, constitutional republic, sorry, um, start to uh, start to fizzle out a little bit. You know, we've we started hit a deadlock to where we have just too much representation, almost. You know, too much varying opinion that it just gums up the system and we can't do anything. So, you know, but we, what we never hear we never hear sustainability kind of used in that way. It's always is it sustainable or is it not. And that's that's my well, that's my main beef with it. Here's what I th- I think you've got to take into account though is things are the idea of sustainability is for anybody who's who's kind of really thought about it. I mean, I think people do throw it around as a buzzword and that is annoying. Yes. But for people who actually understand the concept, the concept of sustainability is not will it be infinitely utilized. That's not the idea. The idea is there are some things that we can look at now. You know, things will always change as our knowledge increases, as our scientific, you know, things get better, as our as our philosophy and society change, you know, as our understanding of ourselves and our universe change. Things will change. That I think everyone understands. Mm-hmm. The idea of sustainability is I can see okay, democracy might not be a sustainable government forever, but it's the most sustainable one that we as humans have thought up at the moment. You know, with the highest level of, of, you know, happiness for the people. You know, it's, it's sustainable as far as we can see. You can look at something like a communist society, a fascist dictatorship, you know... Ayn Rand's cult, and you can say, I can, I can very definitely foresee what will bring about the end of this. Mm. You know, you can definitely see, you know, that we have a finite supply of oil, and therefore the sustainability of fossil fuel-based, you know, engines will only last as long as we have that supply, yeah. or whatever it is. So but, I, I apparently have shortchanged you know, the concept, and you know I just did a Wikipedia search, and it's apparently there there is a field called sustainability science that has developed in the last <laughs> few years. Yeah. What do you know? But it's it seems to be mainly an economic principle, and uh, it is applied most prominently to let's see, they have different different dimensions listed on here: environmental, economic, social. And uh, you know measurements, but it's it's mostly referring to uh, toward the ecological uh, dimension of, of sustainability. But I think 
it has kind of it started there and it's gotten out of control. You know, it started to be become a yeah. buzzword in, in places where it really shouldn't be used. So you know, okay, all right. Um, you know, like most things, it's yeah, maybe I've I've gone a little off the deep end, but there's a little you know, there's a little truth in we there. And you. I just I just had to get it out. Like, can we please just tone it back a little? Can we throttle back the sustainability? You know. <sighs> Here's I will I will give our audience the the number one most given piece of advice to my tutoring students over the years was never use a word if you're not sure you know what it means. Because <laughs> do we really know what any words truly mean? <laughs> they Let's mean not go what down the <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying to go the linguist into a rant, but. <clears throat> no, no, you, you don't need to answer a, that. I have a perfectly legitimate answer to that. But, uh... <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that on a future episode. How's that? Yeah. Uh, because we, we actually have a form spring question that we have uh, deigned to Ooh. answer, which is, uh, you know, what do you think about the idea that names have power and significance beyond being able to make a person uh, you're addressing acknowledge you? And uh, I think that, that could be a good springboard to talking about, you know, what what does a name really mean? You know, what, what do words really mean? I'm, I'm not, this is, oh, what is it? Uh, not phenomenology. What's the study of words? Uh, not, not linguistics, but like the philosophical. I am totally blanking on this right now. I'm sorry to all of my philosophy professors back there or anyone listening to this that I've forgotten the name of that word. But, okay, never mind. I'll think of it at a weird time. So, well, we're kind of uh, coming up on the end of our time here, and, uh, you know, I, I would ask for closing comments, but I think there's really no way that we can close this issue <laughs> in any sort of a concise way. Uh, Jed, did you have any, any um, in, in one minute or less, did you have any, any closing words? First of all, did you mean etymology? No. Okay. Sorry, that's the only thing that came to mind. <laughs> um, but I guess I would challenge everyone out there to go and read the book mm. and or you know just get the cliff notes because let's be real that's probably all you need and i'm not saying that i agree with it but and i'm going way over my one line sorry um i'm not saying i agree but i definitely think it is worth merit mm-hmm. especially given how you know the prevalence of the tea party and stuff like that, that has really kind of come out more during the last few years politically, which they definitely hold. Miss Rand is a very, very highly, she's a highly esteemed there. So yes, I don't know. (laughs) All right. That's good enough. And and I, I (laughs) I've redeemed myself a little bit. I, there's not actually a word for the philosophy of language. It's just philosophy of language. So never never mind. I thought I was blanking on it because there's actually nothing there. Maybe we should invent a word for the philosophy of language. Uh, that would be an interesting study in the philosophy of language. Oh, we're so meta. Uh, anyways, and Kiki, do you have like a thirty-second finishing line of any kind? Um, you know, I just I think that it's a ridiculous philosophy put together by a. Uh, ridiculous person that really didn't understand the world. Okay. And to say that, well, the Tea Party is kind of, you know, seeing this as as someone to look up to is basically kind of my point. Mm. You know, I I mean, you follow this kind of thinking, you get the Tea Party. uh, I haven't explicitly heard any Tea Partiers. I I have quite a few, actually. Okay. Well, once, uh, once Sarah Palin starts quoting Ayn Rand, then we're really f***ed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I would be. I would be. I would be more surprised that Sarah Palin quoted a book. <laughs> that that would impress me. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, other than, Ayn Rand, other like, than you the, read a book. <laughs> a book other than the Bible or the Diary of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, enough. Uh, enough 
bashing for one episode. Uh, thank y'all both for for coming. Uh, for we finally got uh, got everyone together to discuss this topic. Uh, JC Hood, who has been on the show a couple of other times, uh, Anthem is apparently her favorite book ever, and uh, we we uh, invited her to come on the show today, but she had some uh, YouTube videos to record. So uh, we hope JC that you listen to this episode and that you will post your thoughts and comments and maybe even a video rebuttal on uh, on our website. And, uh, and, you know, all the rest of y'all who, who have listened, who've made it through this uh, series of rants strung together, uh, please, you know, give us your thoughts on uh, on Fountainhead, on Atlas Shrugged, on any other of Ayn Rand's works, on the subjects of, of rational egoism and uh, utilitarianism and capitalism. I mean, we talked about a lot of stuff today. Oh, and even on sustainability, we'll, we'll take some thoughts on that, too. Uh, feel free to leave us questions on formspring.me slash badphilosophy. Uh, check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash badphilosophy. And, of course, as always, follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash you guessed it, bad philosophy. Uh, Kiki is voice of Kiki on Twitter. Thanks for coming on the show. Always. Yeah. And uh, Jed, you are still uh, at Linux, L-I-N-N-I-X, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, we wish you the uh, the best of luck on that MBA and uh, look forward to having you back on the show more often. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, you can always follow me, too. I'm on Twitter, twitter.com slash s-torrents, S-T-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. And whether you are self-interested or other-interested or utilitarian or whatever, have a good day, everyone, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Bad Philosophy. Aldi? Yeah. It's like a cheap grocery store with no frills. Oh, okay. They're in the same company now as Trader Joe's. Now, I've heard of Trader Joe's. Yeah, but all these, like, really... Come here, kitty. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. Kiki, focus. (laughs) Hey, I already told you that I'm high. Philosophy.com. Cry, bitch! <laughs>